So we, we spent a week in Boston. We had a great time. Uh, we took the girls to the aquarium and the zoo and the children's museum and, and, and found a lot. I love Boston. Great city. Terrible sports teams, but great city. And uh, we, we had a really good time. And uh, in preparation for going to Boston, I did what you know I did. I, I went online to find all the best places to eat. And one of the things that I discovered is that Boston claims to have the best cannolis anywhere. And I like cannolis. I really, I really like cannolis. And on the north end of Boston, in the Little Italy section, there's three bakeries, and they all claim to have the best cannoli. And it's this, it's just this controversy. It's just the, this debate between Maria's Bakery, Mike's Bakery, and Modern Bakery. And so I did what I, I felt I had a responsibility to do. <laughs> I went and visited all three bakeries and tried all three cannolis multiple times. And so on... <laughs> On the right, you have the cannoli from Modern Bakery. In the middle, you have the cannoli from Mike's Bakery, which had the most ricotta-forward flavoring. And then on the left, you have the cannoli from Maria's Bakery. And I loved, I loved all of them. Actually, every single one of them was better than any cannoli I've ever had in my life. In fact, I feel like I am now ruined for cannolis. Uh, if you have to know, Maria's was my favorite, uh, but I, I loved all of them. You know, as a society, we love ranking things, don't we? Whether it's a debate about where's the best place in Syracuse to get breakfast or who's the greatest basketball player of all time, what's the funniest TV show on right now? And even within our families, we like to rank what was our favorite family vacation that we ever had. It almost feels like at times we can't enjoy things unless we can rank them. We love to rank things. We're always trying to determine which was or which is the greatest. And this morning in our text, we're going to find and learn that the disciples were doing the exact same thing. They were trying to rank the greatest, but they weren't trying to rank Jesus' greatest miracle, and they weren't trying to rank Jesus' most powerful teaching. They were trying to rank themselves. Who amongst us is the greatest? In Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 37, we read about it. It says that they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, speaking of Jesus, he asked them, speaking of the disciples, what were you discussing on the way? Jesus like, I heard you kind of going back and forth talking. What were you talking about? Verse 34, but they kept silent because on the way they were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. It's almost like when you find your kids fighting and you say, what are you fighting about? And nobody wants to say anything because at that exact moment they realize how dumb the thing was that they were fighting about. They don't want to say it out loud. The disciples don't want to say In verse 35, it says that Jesus sat down and he called the 12. Now, two things I want to point out about this short sentence. When he sat down, this was the authoritative position of a teacher in this culture. Teachers were always seated. In our culture, I'm standing and you're seated. But in this culture, it was the reverse. So when Jesus sat down, they knew we're about to learn something. And it says that he called the 12, which seems odd because they were already there. But what it means is he really called them to attention. Okay? So he sits down. He says, hey, pay attention. And then he says this, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, or actually the better translation is receives not only me, but him who sent me. So in a world that is obsessed with finding, defining, and ranking the greatest, Jesus teaches us where we can expect to find the greatest in the kingdom. It's not where we normally would look. 
And the first place that you find the greatest in the kingdom of God is last in line. The greatest in the kingdom of God are always last in line. The Jewish culture of this day was constantly immersed and preoccupied with questions of rank and status. It was a big deal in this culture. There's a German New Testament scholar named Adolf Schattler, and he he says this. He says, whether it was in worship or in administration of justice or at meals or in all dealings, there constantly arose the question of who was greatest or who was greater, and people were always trying to estimate the honor due to each. It was a task that had to be constantly fulfilled, and they felt as a culture like it was very important. It was the shared responsibility of the people when we gather to determine who's the greatest in the room. Determining the greatest, the most important, the most valuable was a constant focus. And and maybe that explains the conversation the disciples were having. But Jesus isn't going to let this thing just go by. Jesus knows what's at stake here. He's headed to the cross very soon. He knows that he's about to hand his life's work and the advancement of the kingdom into the hands of these men. And he knows that if they tried to lead his kingdom and advance his kingdom, and this is the way they view leadership, and this is the way they measure greatness, he knows it's not going to work. The whole thing is going to fall apart. So Jesus here radically refutes, rebukes, and dismisses this mindset. He says, don't concern yourself with rank and standing. And they're thinking, this is all we concern ourselves with. This is the primary thing that we do. His teaching was counter-natural, counter-intuitive, counter-cultural, and it still is today. We spend most of our lives trying to get to the front of the line, whether it's metaphorically, trying to get to the front of the line in our careers, in our lives, or whether in some cases it's we literally are trying to get to the front of the line. You know what it's like when you're in Wegmans and you're shopping and you got your cart full of stuff and you come up and you have to choose which, which line you're going to go through. What do you do? Do you look for the longest line? No. You look for the shortest line. Where is the shortest line? You start counting the stuff in your baskets to try to determine whether or not you qualify for certain things. And then it's worse than that in my case, and maybe you can relate to this. I don't, I don't just look at the length of the line. I look at the person who's running the register. Is that bad to admit? I look for a couple of things. Maybe I shouldn't say what I'm looking for. You just get a sense of who's moving a little faster and who isn't. Who's really into their job? So I'm like, in, in a moment, I'm calculating all of this, and you are too. Which, long, which line looks the longest? You're looking in people's carts that are in front of you. How much do they have in their cart? So we're doing all of this, and we're checking out all so that we can get to the front of the line. Because who wants to be at the back of the line? We do this in our, our, our lives and in our work and in our play. And yes, even in our religious activity, we're always uh, prone to trying to figure out how do I get to the front How do I get out front so I can be seen? I'm not content in the back. I'm not willing to allow other people to get more notice and attention and reward than me. I I need to be seen. I'm driven at all costs to succeed. I'm determined to be the star. And then Jesus comes along and says, hey, if you want to be first, if you want to be the greatest, you got to get in the end of the line. You got to be last of all, last in line. Now, that phrase, last of all, it bothers me because I kind of want to say to Jesus, last of all, Like, can I let a few people in front of me? Like, can I be in the middle of the pack? I don't have to be up front. I'm happy just being in the middle of the pack. Do I really have to be at the end of the line, last of all? And I think Jesus is saying yes, last, because it's only when you and I are standing 
at the end of the line that I think the ungodly ambition in us can begin to die. It's only when we are willing and intentional about letting others be seen and noticed and go before is that the Spirit can actually begin to put to death in us the very thing that makes us want to be at the front of the line. And so we have to discipline ourselves as disciples of Jesus to let every other person, all, 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 let every other person, regardless of their station in life or their status in the room, to pass us by. The greatest are found last in line. Now let me give you two points of clarification before I move on. The first one is this. This does not mean that you're eager to be at the end of the line. It doesn't mean that you're eager to be overlooked. It means that you're willing. There's a difference. Some people want to be last because they, they want to throw a self-pity party. They want to feel bad for themselves. They want to take a victim mentality. That's not what Jesus is saying here. It's not an unhealthy eagerness to kind of always be on the outside of things because that's your identity, that's who you are, that's how you function. It's a willingness. It's a, it's a heart position that says, if everybody passes me by, go ahead. I'm willing. I'm willing. It's not, a, it's not an eagerness. It's a willingness. But here's the, another point of clarification. This is not Jesus teaching us to let people walk over us and stand by silently when it comes to issues of justice. When justice is at stake, God expects us to have a clear sounding voice because God cares about justice. If you study through the Old Testament, you'll hear God's heart for the widows and for the orphans and for the poor, and for those that have no voice. And as the people of God, if we have one clear responsibility to the people around us, it's to give voice to people who have no voice. And so on issues of justice, we're not supposed to back off. This is issues of personal power, personal preference, my status, my reputation, my fame, being willing to be last in line. Now, what might it look like to be last in line? Let me give you some examples Willing to be last in line might look like this. You're willing to not always have the last word. You're willing to not have the responsibility and to carry the weight of having to correct everybody all the time, whether it's in person or online. It's willing to do things that no one else is willing to do. It's willing to not be celebrated and let it go, to not get the applause and be okay with it. It's a willingness to celebrate. This is a tough one. It's a willingness to celebrate other people who have surpassed you in a certain ability or gift or skill that you have and that means a lot to you. Isn't that, is the only one, am I the only one that can be difficult to do? To see somebody surpass you in something but to still be okay to celebrate them. I think one of the indicators of being last in line is that you're basically impossible to offend. You're unoffendable because you're not thinking about yourself. And maybe it's, a, maybe it's a willingness to distribute your wealth, your resources, your treasure in a way that isn't just building your kingdom and making your life more comfortable, but it's giving in a way that advances God's kingdom and is for the benefit of others. And one final thought on what it might look like to stand last in line is always seeing the best in others. Seeing the best in others. Aren't you glad that God sees the best in you? God looked at a, a, a guy like Peter who you learned about last week and was able to see the good in him even though Peter had a lot of issues, just like you and I do. It's not just, I'm going to let you in front of me because I have to. It's not that. It's, I'm going to let you in front of me because of how I see you. Because Christ has changed the way I see you. And you're of great value to me, and you're of great value to God. You're of great value to the kingdom, and so go right ahead. The greatest are found last in line. But also, the greatest are found last in line, and they're also first to serve. Last in line, 
but first to serve. Jesus says, if you want to be first of all, you have to be last of all and the servant of all. Now that word servant in the Greek is the word diakonos. And basically what it means is a table waiter. So somebody who waits at a table and serves. I was thinking, well, what do waiters do? Uh, someone who waits on a table. They're supposed to be attentive, right? They're supposed to even anticipate your needs. I love going to a restaurant, and as soon as my cup is empty, someone comes over and fills it up. I just feel like, that's amazing. Like, they're paying attention. I'm not having to wave them down or yell across the room or bang my fork on the table to get some, get some water in my drink, uh, in my cup. They offer helpful suggestions. They, they don't get to choose who they serve and how they serve based on personal preferences. This is what I think of when I think of people who are serving at tables. And this is the sort of image that Jesus uses to serve others, be attentive to others, anticipate their needs, ask them questions, be helpful with your suggestions, and don't choose who you're going to serve based on personal preference. Because there are some of us who are very willing to serve as long as we still have some level of control and say over how we serve and who we serve. But let me just ask you, if you're controlling how you serve and who you serve, is that, is that really the type of service that Jesus is calling for here? He says, again, that dreaded three-letter word, serve all. Serve all. Now, if you're a leader or if you're in a position of leadership, this is not an abdication of authority. This is, saying, this is not saying don't lead. This is, this is more about the disposition of your heart. Are you willing to serve both your superiors and those who would be considered your inferiors at your workplace? So if you're in middle management, do you exert all of your emotional and relational energy to buddy up with the people who are above you, the vice presidents, the CEO, all the executive directors, and, but do you ignore the people who, in your opinion, do the grunt work below you because the advantage to you is to serve them, not to serve them. And Jesus is saying something tremendously radical, both for this culture and for our culture. Serve all. Don't determine who you're going to serve based on how it's going to serve you. That's not true service. In the end, who are you really serving if you serve that way? You're serving yourself. You know, this idea of serving all, by the way, one, one little caveat, it does not mean being nice at all costs. It does not mean not saying the truth. I read an article this past week uh, by an interview with a guy named Ron Shake. He was the CEO of Panera up until this past January when he retired. And he was reflecting upon his time. He was in there for like 25, 30 years leading this company, Panera. There's a location right down the street from here. And they asked him, what's your biggest mistake in all of your years of being the CEO of Panera? And he said, my biggest mistake was misunderstanding the term servant leadership. Servant leadership. And this is what he said. He said that when Panera was nothing, when they came out of nowhere, he came up with a few friends, and they were all in the business together, and they all rose to the top together. But as it is with organizations, certain leaders have ceilings as far as their capacity to lead. And they got to a point where Ron was able to lead the organization as it grew, but the two buddies around him weren't able to. And they were actually hurting the company because of their lack of leadership ability and vision. And he said that because he believed that servant leadership was being nice at all costs, or being nice at any cost, he didn't deal with them because he didn't want to hurt their feelings, because they were ineffective and they were hurting the organization. And he said this, this is his exact quote. He said, eventually I learned that servant leadership isn't about being nice at all costs, it's about being helpful at all costs. And there's a difference. Being nice at all costs, you don't say the truth. Being helpful at all costs, you speak the truth in love. 
a leader should be brutally, as brutally honest as possible. And you can do this, and you can do this in a love and kind way. And so this is a sort of servanthood that Jesus is calling us to, radical servanthood. This is serving that costs you something. And ask yourself this, am I serving God in a way that actually costs me something, that inconveniences me in some way? And this is also serving that should make no sense to people who are outside of the family of God. They should look at you and go, you do that? Why do you do that? How does that help you? That doesn't make any sense. That's the sort of serving that we are called to. The greatest in the kingdom are last in line and first to serve. Now, there are, there are some serving opportunities at our church that are more visible than others, aren't there? You see the, the band, the singers, the, the, the people who speak into the microphone. You see those people. But there are a lot of people that serve on a regular basis in this church that you don't even know they serve. They're last in line, but they're first to serve. And I want to honor some of them. And some of them won't like being honored because they like not being known. But I just want to honor them because I believe that honor is due to those who serve. We have teams that come in here every week and clean this church. We don't pay anybody to clean this church. We have volunteer teams that clean this church. We have the Bailey family, the Coe family, Rob and Mendy Lathrop, the DeMarzo family, Ryan Jones. They come and they rotate on Saturdays and they come and they clean this room and they, they mop out there and they do it. And sometimes it takes them hours, a couple hours. I don't know exactly how long it, it takes them, but they do it. They're never seen, they're never noticed, but they're serving. They're the first to serve and they're the last in line. Ralph and Nick and Dom DeMarzo in the winter, if there's, a snow out, if there's snow out there, they come early and they shovel and they salt before anybody sees them do it. But they're willing to do it. They're willing to be last in line, first to serve. Kurt Praxel every month checks our fire equipment in our buildings to make sure that everything's up to date, which is great because the town of Clay code inspector just came this past Wednesday and looked through our building and said, we're 100% in compliance with code, which is amazing. And that's because, yeah, we can thank God for that. That's because people like Kurt and Rick and Jason, well, we knew they were coming, that helped too. Um, but, but, it's because there are people, when no one else is looking, when no one else notices, they're serving. This is true of the people that serve in our media. I mean, I could go on and on. People serving, last in line, first to serve. This is what I dream about. This is what I think about. What if Trinity Assembly was filled with 100% of people who were willing to be last in line and first to serve? What would that look like? There's five things I think that would happen. Number one, every need would be met. Every need would be met. We'd be waiting around for needs. Number two, every single person would be involved in some sort of volunteer work. Every member especially. If you're a member especially, every member involved in some type of volunteer work. Number three, no one, this is important, no one would be overworked or overstretched. We have people that serve in multiple positions right now because of the need. They're overworked and they're overstretched. But if everybody's 100% in, it doesn't happen. Number four, and this is important, we would be ready as a church for growth. I'm not 100% convinced we're ready for what God's gonna send because we need all hands on deck as a church to be ready, to be ready to go to multiple services, to be ready to care for people, to be ready to meet needs. It's not because there's a lack of faithful people in this church. It's because we're not 100% all in. But I believe that God, by his grace, can get us there. And then the last thing that we would be, if everybody was willing to be last in line and first to serve, is the culture in this church. When people walked in here, it would be so radically different than everything else they experienced that they would want to know more. Okay? That's what would happen. So after Jesus talks about being last of all and servant of all, he then says, he takes a child, and he kind of provides like an illustrated sermon. 
So Jesus gives the teaching, and then he acts it out in front of him. He calls this child. He says, if, if anyone's going to receive me, you have to receive this child. And if you receive this child, you receive not only me, but you receive the Father who sent me. Now, here's the problem with this part of the text. This example doesn't affect us the way it affected them. Because the position of children in our society has changed dramatically. Today, children are of great importance, of great importance. In fact, in some ways, children have become idols in some people's lives and in some people's homes. Children are greatly valued. Where they're protected. I mean, uh, some people would say they maybe are overprotected. They get, a, they get a trophy for everything they do, whether they win or not. We're all about children and their self-esteem. Like, we value children. And there's nothing wrong with loving and valuing children. We should. So, but because of that, when we read this story, it does not have the impact on us that it should. In this culture, at this time, you have to understand that children occupied a precarious position in society. Some children were loved, but many were exploited, depending on sort of their family. For example, there's a a copy of a papyrus letter written by a man to his expectant wife, dated June 17th, 1 BC, and instructs her of this. If it's a male child, let it live. If it's a female, cast it out. Children were viewed as disposable based on gender. As late as AD 60, a son could be put to death simply by a father's order. So children in this culture were viewed as relatively useless until they became adults. So when Jesus gives this illustrated sermon on greatness and how to treat others, Jesus chooses a child, and here's what he's teaching. Instead of worrying about your own position, be concerned for the weakest, most humble member of the community. One commentator said it this way, we are to receive all of God's people as we do children with no thought of their accomplishments, their influence, their fame, or their gifts, but simply because they are his children. Donald and Kaya love Ava Lee not because she's earning any money for them right now. She's costing them a lot of money, a lot of money. She's not adding anything other than a lack of sleep to their lives, but they love her because she is their child. And this is what Jesus is teaching us. We have to love one another not based on what I think you can do for me, not based on how you add value to my life, but because you're a child of God, and so I love you. And when you receive that person, you receive Jesus, and you recognize the truth that that person bears the very image of God, our creator, and is loved by the Son. Let me close um, by, with one last look in Mark chapter 10. So you would think at this point that the disciples get the point, right? Okay, don't argue about the greatest. Jesus put, it, put us in our place. Wrong. <laughs> The very next chapter, James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, and now we're in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. I'm not going to read it to you because we're, we're closing, but I want to make an example out of this part of the story. James and John come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, give us whatever, will you give us whatever we ask? All parents know that's a trap. That's a trap. Don't say yes. But Jesus says, well, what do you want? And James and John say, when you enter into your glory, your kingdom, when you rise to power, can you grant to us that one of us will sit on your right-hand side and one of us will sit on your left-hand side? Basically, they're saying, hey, we know that you're going to rule and reign. Now, they thought he was going to do it right then and there. And when you do, can you make us your number two and your number three person? And Jesus goes into this whole talk about drinking cups and baptism. He's talking about his suffering. He's saying, you don't understand why I'm here. You don't understand what I've come to do. If you, when Jesus entered into his glory, you know what his moment of glory was? It was the cross. You know, there was somebody at his right, and there was somebody at his left. James and John didn't want to be there. He's basically saying, you don't know what you're asking for. 
you don't have a clue what you're asking for. The glory that I'm going to enter in is so different than the glory you think I'm going to enter in. And sitting on my right and sitting on my left includes drinking the cup that I drink, the cup of suffering, and being baptized into suffering like I'm going to be. And then the, the other ten disciples catch wind of all this, and they get indignant toward James and John. Maybe because they're like, oh, man, they thought of it first. <laughs> Sometimes, actually, it's the flaws, in other people that bo- the flaws in other people that bother us the most are the flaws that we share with them, right? And so the ten get indignant. And let's look at how Jesus addresses this in verse 42, and we'll close. Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. He's saying other leaders use their power to exploit people and take advantage of people. And the great ones exercise authority over them. But in verse 43, he says, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now he ups the ante. In chapter 9, he used the word servant, diakonos, which means a waiter. Here he uses the Greek word doulos, which is a slave. So he's like, you didn't get it the first time. So let me say it in stronger terms. Slave of all. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The most ironic thing about the debate in Mark 9 and the story in Mark 10 is that it's it's bookended and filled in with Jesus talking about his death. This is when the whole book starts to shift. Jesus starts talking about the fact that he's going to die. And while Jesus begins to talk about the fact that he's going to die, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest and trying to jockey for position. But it's not until verse 45 that Jesus answers the question why he came to die. He said, to give my life as a ransom for many. Now, when we hear the word ransom, we tend to think of like a hostage situation or a kidnapping. It's not what it means here. The word ransom means here to buy the freedom of a slave or to buy the freedom of a prisoner. Somebody who is enslaved and cannot purchase their freedom. That's what Jesus was saying. I'm here to set free prisoners. And then there's the word for. And the word for is the Greek word anti, which means instead of, in place of, or as a substitute. I'm going to pay a price in your place. I'm going to set you free by doing what you cannot do for yourself. So you and I, whether we like it or not, we're like James and John. We try to budge to the front of the line. We look for opportunities to be served and not serve. We come to God just like James and John, and we say, God, give me whatever I want. And here's what God's saying to us this morning. You need way more you need way more than a spot at the front of a line. It will never satisfy you. There will always be another line. You need way more than getting your needs met because life is not about you. You need way more than your self-serving request that you bring God. You know what you need? You actually need to be saved from all of those things. You need to be saved from your selfishness, saved from your sin. You need to be rescued, not just from your circumstances, but from yourself. And ultimately, you need your heart to be changed and to be pulled away from your own selfishness and idolatry. You need to love less the things of this world and love God more. And there's nothing I can give you tangibly that will do that. So here's the deal. Here's what Jesus is saying. Here's the deal. I'm not going to give you that stuff. I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to give you my life. And then he deliberately lays his life down on the cross so you and I can be reconciled to God. And Tim Keller says that all life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. The only type of love that changes someone's life is the love that is demonstrated through substitutionary sacrifice. Well, why does this matter? Ten years ago, the New York Times Magazine read an article entitled Happiness 101. And here's the gist of the article. 
They're saying if you live for yourself and your own pleasure, it only puts you on an endless treadmill of always needing more. So the best way to bring meaning and to have the sense that your life is significant is to actually lead an unselfish life of service to other people. Sounds good, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Here's the problem. If you're leading an unselfish, quote-unquote, unselfish life to make yourself happy, is that really unselfish service? Of course it isn't. Jonathan Edwards, in his book, The Nature of True Virtue, says this. I want to read this to you, paragraph. This will be very helpful, I think. He says, if you don't believe the gospel of grace, if you believe that you're saved by your works, if you believe that you're saved by your performance, even your willingness to get at the end of the line, and even your willingness to be first to serve, then you've never done anything your entire life for love of others or for the sheer beauty of it. You've done it for yourself. You have not helped the proverbial little old lady across the street just for her sake or in the end for God's sake. You've done it because then you can look at yourself in the mirror and know I'm the kind of person that helps little old ladies across the street and expect to go to heaven someday because of it. It's all selfish. It will become drudgery and you'll end up believing that you're superior to others. Now, what does this mean for us this morning? If Jesus is simply an example of getting last in line and being first to serve, well, now it's on you to measure up. And now all you're serving is ultimately self-serving. You will get in the back of the line, and you will be the first to serve, especially after a message like this, but it will be motivated by desire to earn something that you can't earn, to deserve something you don't deserve. So what breaks the cycle? Only the gospel. When we see the gospel, that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many, he paid the price that you and I couldn't pay. It makes us joyful when we're at the end of any line. We can stand at the end of any line and whistle and smile and have a song in our heart. It motivates us to serve regardless of the reward. It makes us the greatest of the kingdom. We move from thinking I have to serve to I want to serve. See, in the kingdom, the way to glory is sacrifice, service, and suffering. And exaltation involves lowliness. But once you've seen Jesus, who he is and what he's done, here's what happens. The sacrifice becomes a willing sacrifice. The service becomes a selfless service. The suffering becomes humble suffering. And the lowliness becomes joyful lowliness. And you'll be last in line, and you'll be first to serve. Let's pray together this morning.